Bomba Hills Porch. Today is October 1st, 2020, and I am Caleb Klontz, together with Chris Martin and Nate Larmore. We are three Christian dads trying to recover the lost art of sitting on the porch together to build community, camaraderie, and take some time to enjoy the view of God's Word and God's world. Today we're looking forward to discussing a world event, UN concerned about pushback against women's rights, uh, the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, and a local story about a Spokane Valley family who's lost everything in an apartment fire. Um, before we jump right into that, uh, did you guys watch the debate uh, that happened uh, the other night? Oh, what a painful experience it was. I don't know about you guys. It was depressing. It was... <laughs> I don't know. Anyone else feel differently? No. In fact, I did not watch the whole debate. Because we got a few minutes into it, and my wife said, okay, I'm going to go and pick up pizza for dinner because I can't be in the room with this going on. And then when she came back, she said, no. So I, I had to turn it off. Uh, yeah, I, there's been so much analysis already, right? If you listen to any podcasts or news in the last two days, it's been, it's been, it's kind of interesting. Everyone seems to have backed their guy, but still everyone agrees it was a train wreck. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I don't think it probably changed anybody's opinion of either of the candidates, unfortunately. <laughs> so, and it didn't lend any more clarity to really any of the issues. Um, anyway, at least at least from from my take on it, uh, we we made it all the way through. But I was a little disappointed that I ate early uh, so I could watch it. If there was a loser, I think it might have been Chris Wallace. Hard to say, but I don't. I think pretty universal um, condemnation of. Of what he allowed to happen, uh, hard. I, I From don't both live sides. in that world. Yeah, <laughs> and that, you know, that's the bummer of being the moderator in a debate where things got out of hand. Is both from the right and from the left, everybody's mad that he didn't uh, do what he needed to do so that their guy could win the clear victory he was clearly about to uh, to win if he'd stayed out of their way. So maybe that's a sign of having done a good job. You know, it say. might be, <laughs> but it was it was painful. I can't think of any other presidential debate in my lifetime. That's even in the same league, and that includes the ones between Trump and Hillary. Right, right. And those were not uh, calm or tame by any means. But Caleb, thanks so much for asking, bringing up a a, a painful memory. Yeah, I didn't want to <laughs> didn't want to go too far on on off topic. Uh, you know, there are three of us. We could have arranged, you know, a, a reenactment or a fight or something, but probably better to get on on with it and, and didn't want to. Uh, your your two minutes. My two, your minute, two minutes are up. My two minutes are up. So excuse me. We could try talking over so, Caleb. I'll do the moderator. <laughs> gentlemen, gentlemen. <laughs> All right, let's move, let's move on. Uh, Chris, uh, on to a world event for us uh, this morning or today. Yeah, whatever time <laughs> what? you happen to be listening, yeah. that is when we are transitioning. Yeah, uh, there's a lot going on in the world besides um, U.S. politics. It is interesting, though, even looking around at a number of different news uh, sources, looking at world events. The U.S. politics does have an outsized presence, even internationally, and that's just partially a factor of the way uh, the world works. We're also interconnected. But uh, there's more things that are going on. A story that caught my attention came from the U.N. Uh, we don't often hear about the U.N. unless there's like a lull <laughs> in world events, it seems like. But they're busy doing stuff. Uh, this last week, um, uh, September 30th, the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, uh, he warned of what he felt was pushback against the pushback uh, for women's rights. And so he, he was saying, hey, I think we were seeing a trend of 
of women's rights triumphing around the world. And now uh, I'm seeing a pushback to that forward uh, momentum. He was joined by uh, largely the leaders of China, uh, Jinping, I believe is how his, his name is pronounced, and then also Macron from France, uh, saying that, yeah, we're, we're starting to move in the, in the wrong direction. And though it, uh, the article highlighted, this was from Reuters, uh, that no specific entity was, was singled out as being the, the reason why they think they're no, no longer making progress. They did talk uh, quite a bit about some of the new U.S. policies. And, and specifically, and this is where I wanted to kind of focus our conversation, what they were concerned about is an unwillingness to use what is now considered to be uh, the, the standard internationally accepted language for discussing women's rights. Uh, as, as they described, a main point of contention in recent years has been long agreed international language on women's sexual and reproductive health and rights. Macron specifically said progress achieved by great efforts is being undermined even in our democracies, starting with the freedom for women to control their own bodies and in particular the right to abortion. And that was picked up uh, the, Donald Trump and at his uh, discussions related to the, to the UN on this. He was saying, hey, reproductive health, sexual health, um, rights for women is, uh, is code for abo- abortion. Hmm. And yet, uh, as we just heard from Macron, yes, it is, right? That's what they're, they're saying. Um, and then, uh, of course, uh, China's Xi jumped in by saying, we need to eliminate prejudice, discrimination, and violence against women and make gender equality a social norm and moral imperative observed by all. We might add that Question, Chris, a meager effort on the part of the Uyghurs would be appreciated well, along those lines. Uh, that's kind of what I was going to ask about is doesn't China have a history of, of well, at some point, maybe it still exists, forced abortion. It wasn't, right. it wasn't a woman's right to choose at all in their society. It was government forced. And then to your point, there are certain subcultures or groups of minorities within China that are being, we're hearing reports, I think, being forced to force sterilization. I mean, they have no choice in the matter. It seems it seems really hypocritical for Z to be talking about this sort of thing. Right. In particular, in the South and the Uyghur population along that southern border, a number of those that uh, have come out from there, um, eyewitnesses are reporting those things taking place. And so, yeah, the article goes to describe the U.S. objecting to China trying to take the moral high ground on women's rights. Uh, but I... I just kind of want to discuss sort of in the larger context, how did, how did women's rights and reproductive health become synonymous with encouraging the populations of the world to kill their children? Hmm, that's true. Yeah, why, and, and I think there's, there's answers, but from your guys' perspective, why do you think that is so important? I would go so far as to say, and I'm not the first one to say this, and I, but I, I agree with the basic premise that when it comes to what has become essentially a religion of the progressive left, it's a religion with a path to salvation, it's a religion with sin, it's a religion with justification and condemnation. I mean, all the religious language is there, uh, but their chief sacrament is abortion. Because that seems to be the thing that they require uh, as a mark of compliance, no matter where they go in the world. Some of the proof of that may be that 
even here, and I know we're going to talk about Supreme Court in a little bit, but that is was absolutely the first thing raised uh, with with any justice with the past two justices that have mm-hmm. been nominated. That was the first subject that was raised, almost as that's the a litmus test. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when that's top top of mind, the top priority. It is interesting that when it comes to women's rights, there's many other rights, uh, certainly in the globe, that 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 women don't have in many nations. And uh, not in many nations, they don't have the right to vote. They don't have the right to to self-determination in in, in many nations and certain cultures in certain parts of the world. uh, They they are really subjugated to a subhuman existence in many ways. Uh, It seems like at the U.N. level, those ought to be high priorities. And and yet it, it is interesting in the quote you read. The quick, the, the very short distance between bringing up women's rights and the first thing that's discussed is the right to abortion. Exactly. Well, I wonder if that's not, you know, partly because that that's something that, that's not, that's going to always, at least to some degree, have, have pushback on it. Whereas, you know, especially here in the West, we can say, you know, by and large, women's rights and, and the fight for women's rights has been quite successful, except for in that area, right? And yes, there are other countries where women still don't have a lot of those same rights that, that are that are afforded to women in, in the in the West. Um, but but where if where is the fight on the ground in the West? You know, they want us to still be active here. Yes, we could push for for white rights uh, in, in other countries in Africa or, or in Asia or whatever. But but then what what are we doing here? And, and that is the one, if you will, kind of. Hold out, um, um, uh, hold out topic, you know, uh, for especially for for evangelicals. I mean, where that's you know we can agree in, in a lot of ways with a lot of the other human rights or not human rights, women's rights uh, um, um, uh, topics, points. But 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 that's one that you know obviously we we don't agree with because of the sanctity of life. So, do, do you? Uh, I'm just imagining. I mean, our listener listening audience is is fairly conservative as far as we know. But if by chance someone that is, is does not agree with us on issues of faith, issues of culture, who, who wouldn't agree with us on everything? Well, clearly, I mean, they'd be wrong. Where, where would some <laughs> such misguided person be? Hard, hard to say. Uh, these days, I think you could just look at the electoral map. You might have some guesses, right? That's just kind of unfortunately how things go. <laughs> but I, I wonder. You know, one of the first re, first pushbacks. That someone listening from that perspective would have is, well, what do you guys know? You're three men. I find that also really interesting because it's as if we are dad, we're each dads, we have daughters, we have wives that uh, we adore. And and yet uh, the culture has created these presuppositions that certain people's opinions don't matter because of our gender and various other characteristics. It's really destructive. What's fascinating, though, is even if one of our wives were to come on the show, maybe they will at some point, and speak to this issue and from the same perspective, because they have independent minds, but we know what they believe, the rejection would be something else. I think it's, it, just, it really shows the commitment to this particular issue, uh, the political commitment. To, to this issue, that it's it's not so much a, oh you can't speak to this because you're a man, it's it, there's always going to be some kind of an excuse to reject your opinion until you actually conform. I, I'm kind of curious from you guys' position. I mean, I what we believe the reason we believe what we believe about abortion is we do believe it's a human life that's being destroyed, and 
and yet I used to think years ago that as medical science would improve, as it did improve, as it has improved with 3D ultrasound. And every time we've, you know, we've got three kids and during the pregnancy, we were able to see them in amazing clarity and see the heartbeat and see all these amazing things. And it was exciting. I kind of thought that as that became more obvious, that people's opinions would shift. And I don't know about you, but I found that they've actually, their opinions are more galvanized than ever in spite of the evidence that this is not just a clump of cells. There is, there is a genuine human life there. Yeah. And, and an evidence of that is the change in the rhetoric around the discussion, whereas you used to hear a lot of discussions about a clump of cells, right? It's just a lump. It's just a tumor. You know, these, this kind of language up until some point where then it finally looks like a baby. Uh, but that, that language is largely fallen by the wayside because of all this technology where you've got the 3D image right there. And people are saying, wow, that looks very human. But instead, then, they've been willing to go to the point where they say, okay – Let's instead shift the topic to personhood. At what point do we decide that this human being has enough awareness, has enough faculties, or has enough value from some external source, like a mother, that we confer rights upon it? Right. I, th- I think there's no longer a debate at, for most as to whether or not it's a human being, uh, whether it's human life. It's it's exactly like you're, you're saying, it's, it's when does that personhood um, actually uh, exist and but but even more than that, whose rights trump another's? Because they would say, well, the mother, uh, the mother's rights are, are greater really than than the than the baby's. I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to: is one life is more valuable than the other. I think it's important too. It's such such a sensitive subject, such a lightning rod. Not the kind of thing you'd bring up in in mixed in a mixed dinner out out to dinner setting with people you don't necessarily know. It might come up. But it's it's one of those issues that's just so instantly emotional. Right. I wonder if it's almost it, you almost have to state the the reason we the reason that we feel this way is because we value life, not just the life the life of the child, but the life of the mom. Having said that, we as Christians do need to, I think, provide more than simply an opinion on this. We've got to, and, and, and I've really been impressed with a number of Christian groups that not only provide uh, pregnancy health services to, to women of all ages, more often than not, you see it tends to be younger women that find themselves um, pregnant during their teenage years, but you see a lot of Christian organizations that, that are specifically being helpful in these areas. I think that that's kind of the flip side of the coin. Sometimes that's the pushback I've seen as well. I know we're kind of diving into probably yeah. a more specific area than, than your, the article is talking about, but I, I think those are important backgrounds. Um, and probably it's probably not news for a lot of folks that are listening in. I do find it interesting, Chris, how we've talked about this offline and before the, this intersectional view of the world and as special, as special rights are being discussed more and more, there seems to be a never ending list of, of categories, some, you know, victim categories. If you, if you are looking at the world through a critical race theory lens, I find it fascinating that at some point we on the outside looking in, don't agree with viewing the world that way. We believe in the individual, not categories. Uh, We say you have conflicting interests within this, coalition of, of, of groups and categories, it seems like those that are on the inside of that are coming to the same conclusion. Yeah, agreed. And, and that's, 
an intersectional view of reality is it it becomes a feedback loop. <laughs> there's there's no there's no end to how many intersections you can begin to calculate after a while. I wanted to pull up a little bit uh, to something you'd said earlier because I I do want to encourage us as men and our listeners as well. This is an a, an area of society genuinely to get some skin in the game. What are we doing? Not just to uh, to be an advocate for what we're supporting, an advocate against what we see to be as a moral evil, but to be involved in in the human equation that's behind the rhetoric, and that looks differently for different things. I. Uh, I'm proud of my my mother for years of faithful service she did in what was called crisis pregnancy centers. Um, at her time, uh, life services is now kind of its current manifestation, helping young mothers. Uh, I know in our own family, uh, we've been able to adopt through the local foster system uh, and, and help a, a, a young boy to have a home. Uh, these These are ways that Christian families can just practically say, we just want to help and support life. Um, that that's going to be an opportunity that never goes away because mm-hmm. in, a, in a fallen world for lots of reasons, there's going to be children who need a home and there's going to be young women who need support uh, if they're going to be uh, able to, to carry a child to term. But I wanted to, before we jumped off this topic and we need to move on here before too long, I wanted to, to try to put our, our feet in another pair of shoes and discuss a little bit as fathers why abortion is so important and so appealing to many in our culture. Uh, there there was this concept of demographic dividend that I had never heard of, uh, put this way, that That's I came across one. in researching this topic. And it, it was uh, part of the, the UN's page for their um, population fund. So they have a fund to deal with population issues. And as you read through it, um, you know, they say that their basic framework and their basic goal is to secure reproductive health and rights. But they, they go on to say this, smaller numbers of children per household generally lead to larger investments per child, more freedom for women to enter the formal workforce, and more household savings for old age. And that creates economic payoff that can be substantial, as it says here. Uh, this is a demographic dividend. And so what they're saying is... Here's, here's the scenario they're trying to avoid, right? They're saying we're seeing across the world in many cultures this patriarchal model where little girls grow up and very little is invested in their education, very little is invested in developing their skills and abilities, very few opportunities are given to them because the understanding and expectation is that as soon as they reach the age of sexual maturity, some guy is going to then claim them as a wife, usually through some kind of an economic transaction with her parents that they that she has very little input into. She is then going to be this guy's basically property, and she's going to reproduce as many times as she is biologically capable of, and she is going to then spend her life in, in poverty trying to take care of this horde of children while her husband is off doing whatever her husband is off doing and only paying attention to her when he feels like it. And that's, that's the plight of women. And so they're saying what we've got to do is figure out a way so that she is not stuck in this situation where she has all these kids that are dependent upon her and no help and support in taking care of them. If she has sexual autonomy, if she has sexual control over her body and she can decide how many children she wants to have, then that gives her the freedom just of resources and time to be able to do other things. 
And that then encourages and incentivizes the society to say, well, since our women are not just expected to be feeding and clothing seven, eight, however many children, uh, maybe we should let her go to school. Maybe we should consider having her do uh, something else in society that would have uh, more, more prestige, more esteem in the culture. And so they see abortion essentially as, as the linchpin issue that unlocks this whole world of potential and freedom and, and sort of breaks down that cultural cycle that entraps women. Uh, and again, I, I don't come from a pro-choice background, so I may not have articulated that exactly as somebody who, who does hold to this view would, would state it. But that's, that's my best attempt to try to uh, understand at least some of the reasons why this issue is so important, not just in a, we love killing babies, because that's, you know. Yeah, no one would n- say yeah, that. Right, nobody but, does. And, yeah. Uh, but I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important. What, what would you guys see as, okay, what, what's the real cultural issue there? When, when the gospel comes to bear on a culture like that, what changes? I think it's interesting, as is the case with almost any hypothetical situation. It takes a lot for granted. So sure. there seem to be in that in that hypothetical situation you described, um, which may indeed be happening, but it sure seems to take for granted that that abortion in particular would resolve that situation. And yet, yet you'd have to say that it more than likely would not in 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 that particular situation. I think coming back to what you said a little bit ago, Chris, about how does the gospel coming into that situation, how does that have a profound impact? I think the profound impact there is that the gospel in elevating God, it also elevates the value of each human being. It, it God didn't mm-hmm. just die for categories. He didn't just die for hypotheticals. He died for the individual. Now, he's doing it for his glory, and, and we are saved through his amazing work. But I think that's it's one of the interesting—I think it's a false stereotype that, you, that I hear often out, out in the secular world that, that gospel Christians are somehow this, this kind of uh, medieval, dark ages. Those kinds of terms are used to describe us, subjugation of women, and it just shows a profound misunderstanding— of, of what Christianity believes, and it shows a prof- it, it betrays a, a prejudgment that a lot of secular people have that about what we believe. And what we believe is the value of the, of the individual, the value of, of every single person before God. Amen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agreed. Uh, you know, I, that's what the, the gospel being brought to bear in a situation means that, that you know, especially that husbands love their wives and care for their children and see that as a, as a primary responsibility, um, that wives love their husband and husbands and care for their children as well. So, so the gospel being brought to bear means a lot of things, you know, in, in a situation like that. And, and I can, I can kind of see, um, from the perspective you were trying the lens you were trying to look through. And yet there's so many other things that, that, you know, we, that we could, we could talk about other than, than abortion being the solution to that. Um, you know, uh, obviously the gospel is, is the ultimate solution, but, but even things like contraception and other things like that being, being introduced, uh, you know, rather than immediately going into, you know, 
women's health, uh, reproductive health means equals abortion. And, and I think that's an, another problem with, with this whole narrative is, is that's essentially what it means. Women's health equals abortion. Mm. So we don't really yes. have women's health clinics. The Planned Parenthood clinics are they're abortion clinics. I mean, that is really what they are. There's, there's a small amount of additional health, health that, is, that, is, uh, that is provided, but, but really very, very minimal um, when you look at it. That's clearly an area as, as Christians we need to we we need to take I think a more bold I mean we already are there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of fighting against protesting against social media posting against lots of sound and fury yes yeah a lot of messages does it signify I mean we criticize virtue signaling but everyone does it at some point and that doesn't justify it I think in fact it makes it a it's a human problem that if we're just signaling messages. And we're not willing to engage in the solution, engaged in, in meaningful action to help those, uh, first of all, educate those uh, that might disagree with us about why we believe what we believe, um, what the Bible actually says about these things. Uh, very important, but not just educating, not just talking, but action. I mean, God, Jesus is our perfect example. God did not just send the Bible as a message. He himself came into this planet, took took absolute incredible and divine action to save us so he didn't just message he didn't just speak although he has done that he took action we need to do the same absolutely as we get uh, ready to transition into our next topic i i wish that we would and this would be something interesting to do is, is be able to gather a more compelling layout of how the gospel does transform these situations because it is so different than the way I think many in our world imagine how the gospel can affect these situations. When a biblical worldview comes into a place like this, the biggest change is not going to be initially seen in the women. It's going to be seen in the men. Right. right? It's going to be seen in the, in the way that men understand they no longer have a right to see women as an object of sexual conquest. That, that women have the responsibility and autonomy over their own bodies to decide at what point they are willing to give as a gift the joy of sexual union, and that that should be confined to a marriage. And a marriage brings with it protections, recognitions, both within the community and the state that are designed in many ways to protect the women in that situation. It brings into a worldview where the man no longer sees the woman as a glorious trophy on his shelf, but as the one that is his glory. And so his whole purpose is to sacrifice himself for her glory, to in increase her ability to flourish and to demonstrate her gifts and her abilities and who God has created her to be that doesn't see children as her problem, but as his legacy mm -hmm. and as the way in which he is investing himself primarily uh, as, as the calling of, of his life. Uh, it's, it's a culture that is really pretty radical and why in history it's been fascinating to see the way women have fared in the wake of, for example, the Reformation, as opposed to just about any other culture in history. And so uh, women's rights, women's health, abortion, all of these things are all different ways of trying to view an actual problem that it does exist. But if you don't know what the problem really is, then it's easy to look at what the most pragmatic symptom is and say that that's the solution. When in this case, we would say that that actually tragically is trying to prescribe murder to fix oppression. And that's that's a trade-off that nobody should be willing to make. Uh, so as we kick it over, just one last quick anecdote, that all is not lost for women in the world, because Belgian artist Delphine Boel has finally concluded her long legal battle 
in proving that King Albert II of Belgium is her biological father. How long, has, how long has she been fighting this battle? To it? It, has, it has been a while. It has been seven years that she's been fighting this battle, but she won. DNA has proved it conclusively. And with the stroke of a pen in that courthouse, she has become Princess Delphine Boel. And both of her children now have the right to demand that they be referred to as his and her royal highness. And so, you know, there are, there are some victories for women's rights in the world, and that one's a kind of a fun one, I think. But wow. turning more towards uh, local shores, I'll kick it over there to you, Caleb. What do you got? <laughs> yeah, a, a national event um, that happened um, last Saturday. Um, President Trump uh, nominated Amy Coney Barrett uh, for the Supreme Court uh, to fill the, the seat left um, by the passing of RBG. And so, um, obviously, a, a lot in the media about that, um, at least pre, pre-debate, pre-Tuesday night, <laughs> a lot in the, in the media about that nomination. And, and surprisingly, you, know, you would think, here's, here's a, a female nominee. Um, one, I think one article, um, let's see, even said, let's see if I find it quickly. Caleb, Caleb, did I see that already... Amy Coney Barrett has been reduced to an acronym now. Did it, are you guys seeing ACB now? <laughs> yes. I, yes. I am seeing We are in yes. such a lazy time. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG. Yeah. <laughs> well, now we got ACB, ACB and AOC, and that's AOC. just going to you know it's going to be hard to keep it's straight. It's going to be tough to keep all these, <laughs> all these, uh, um, yeah, straight. Uh, in in the Christian Headlines article uh, said uh, started this way. It's uh, quoting uh, Catherine Jean Lopez, but it says. Um, in a sane world, America would have just fallen in love with the Barrett family. And he goes on to talk more about about her, um, but that's not been the reaction, right? Uh, if you look at the a, an article in the Federalist, it says this: uh, the newest Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, is among the poor. Almost, sorry, rather, the polar opposite of the sex in the city chimera of female empowerment, a serious Christian who eschews hookup culture and has seven kids. Half of her resume consists of behavior the leftists would con- who control feminism constantly attack as anti-woman, big-time motherhood, and big-time religion. And then that article, which is actually entitled... The left hates Amy Coney Barrett because she disproves all their lies about women. Uh, goes on to, to list Wait, nine what, of these what lies. What chauvinist that she... man wrote that article? What was that? What chauvinist man wrote what that article? What chauvinist man? This is written by where did it go? Oh, Probably a guy named Bob. Rabbit trail. Something very, very basic, very traditional. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Continue. Sorry about that. It's written by Joy Pullman. Oh, Joy. That's an unusual name for a chauvinist man. It is. Joy. Okay. Mr. Joy has got a lot of explaining to do. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and so, so... There are these nine uh, these nine lies that the article addresses that uh, that the left uh, proposes about women um, that she disproves, and I just wanted to look through these nine headings that they had in this article. Use that as maybe some talking points quickly, um, just uh, about this topic and about this nomination and, and, and Amy, who she is as a person. The first one was that women need abortion to succeed, and I think we've uh, we've kind of hit on that a little bit already. Um, what, what do you guys think about about a statement like that? Succeed at what? Yeah, I there's there's so much to unpack. 
there. I mean, part of the success of any individual is their legacy, uh, whether Christian or not. And so many times the, the pride of parenthood is, becomes your legacy. What the, the, the family that you've cultivated, the children you've raised. In fact, if you think about it, even in pop culture, so many of, of our celebrated heroes, celebrities, sports athletes, uh, the, the folks that are many times the most celebrated stories are when those folks grew up in a single parent home and that mom in most cases in that single parent home is revered as a hero and they in fact are and if you think about it in that case I mean, great success came out of a situation that did not involve uh, killing killing an unborn baby did not involve terminating their life that, that life and they've adopted two you know two children that came out of Haiti but uh, that, that were in less um, you know maybe less favorable circumstances uh, and so they, they they did step forward we were talking about that just a little bit ago what can Christians do and I, I don't know I, I know they're Catholic I don't know their their eternal state I don't know what their faith is just because I, I don't know them um, but but they they there have been feet, you know, to their words, uh, to their faith. Uh, they've, they have actually acted. Yeah, I've, I've, you guys have probably heard this as well. There's been some criticism leveled at ACB because of adopting the kids. I, I mean, it's almost yeah. inconscionable. I, and that's a word that gets used about everything anymore, right? And but criticism's I mean, a mild word. I mean, outright condemnation and attack. Yeah, and, and actually impugning the motives of the family, that they, they did this to, to, to create political props. I mean, it's, it's, it's truly outrageous. And it shows the, it shows the, the depth that, that the political, the politicization of this, of what we're living in right now, it shows the depth, really, of of um, uh, of hatred that's being directed, and it's and it, we truly are living in a time where it's not about the facts, it's not about reality, it's about ideas and doing whatever it takes to to forward or advance your particular political ideas. Yeah. Another one of these uh, lies to move on is just uh, that children make you unhappy. And I, th- I think you hear that, especially when people are counseling uh, young women who maybe out of wedlock have uh, found themselves to be in a situation where they're, they're, they're pregnant. And man, this is going to be a burden. This is going to ruin your life. This is going to ruin your, uh, you know, your whatever your plans are. And so that's, that's a, a primary reason children make you unhappy. Therefore, um, uh, you shouldn't have them, right? And, uh, and so that's a, pr- a primary. There is... Children at times do make you unhappy. I don't know about you guys. You may have had some sort of uh, utopian <laughs> experience as dads. There are times when, I mean, legitimately, they do make you unhappy. Uh, but but so does anything worthwhile. Going to the gym makes me unhappy. Um, going to work occasionally makes me unhappy. It's kind of an interesting, it's such a shallow statement. And, and to your point about these these lies that, that get projected out into society, um, that it's not even realistic to assume that I'm going to be happy all the time. Yet that's used as as a reason uh, that that uh, you know one of these lies about 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 women. But you could argue that about anybody. I mean, I don't know about you guys. My kids sometimes make me unhappy. Yeah, but it also is a an approach to having children that makes a huge difference there. Because if if children interrupted your plan for your life. And so you're trying to fit them in 
next to the expectations you had for your career, your future, your plans for what you're going to be doing with yourself. Children do not handle expectations with any more delicacy than they frankly handle anything else in their world, right? It, they get broken. Uh, and if you're then trying to figure out how to manage with children, uh, in our culture that largely means having other people do most of the primary care, either through the school system and then through daycare. And so your actual interaction with your children, your investment in their lives is very limited. Yeah, children can make your life hell because uh, <laughs> they can just be angry, confused, undisciplined. And, and the worst part is you know exactly where they got it from because they have your sins. <laughs> That's right. They're just even more immature about them. And having a mirror that shows you everything wrong with yourself uh, can be very, very frustrating. And, and that's why the biblical worldview is wrapped around this whole system that approaches raising children in a way that is is not this intrusion on the plan, but it is a central part of the plan. And just that frame of mind alone can make such a difference. Exactly. And that uh, leads to, to Barrett's uh, statement that our children are my greatest joy, even though they deprive me of any reasonable amount of sleep. I think when, when they're a part of our plan, um, we find great joy in them, a great pride in, in our children as well, um, because, yeah, they, they, are a part, they are a part of the plan and, and not an, an unnecessary add-on. Um, but yet, I think they can become that joy even if they aren't part of the plan, right? Uh, um, I know for us, we've had a couple of our children weren't necessarily, you know, we weren't expecting to have children at that time, you know, and so, um, but uh, but they are all a joy. What were you um, expecting to have? Well, puppies. Yeah, uh, yeah not puppies, but... Uh, the Von Trapp children, but even they started bad, as I recall. It's been a while since I've seen The Sound of Music, but uh, kids started off a little rotten, needed yeah. a mom, there and eventually... There were frogs involved. Yes, pranks of all kinds. Uh, get, getting back to ACB, and, and now now I'm, I'm doing <laughs> the very thing that I was uh, making fun of a little bit ago. Uh, when you look at, and, and admittedly, I, I'm not a politico, so I don't study these people, but haven't had a chance to, to get to know about her in the last two weeks, I think, is since, since she's been discussed at the national level. This seems to be an incredibly accomplished person, uh, brilliant uh, in terms in an academic, accomplished in terms of her, her uh, career, the, the somehow managing a large family. I mean, this seems to be the sort of person that were she brought into this nomination process by any other president would probably be someone that is really looked at as a role model for, for, for young women and, and, and girls throughout the country. Really an amazing person. Except that she's on the wrong side of the dogma mm. and the dogma lives loudly in her. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's a quote, right? The, that is a who, quote. Is it Diane Feinstein, Diane Feinstein said that, right? Was, hmm. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to take each of these points and, and beat them to death because uh, we we could probably talk for ten minutes on each one if, if we wanted to. But let me just read through kind of the the rest of these these lies real quick, and then if we have some thoughts on on a specific one, we can we can continue on. But um, they just continue uh, very similar that women must repress their fertility to succeed. Um, that religious people and conservatives are anti-sex. Um, that women don't need men that Christianity oppresses women, that conservatives hate women, 
that a woman should prioritize career over family and that women are oppressed. And obviously, we even just in our conversation talking about her, Nate, the things you just mentioned about her, um, all, all of these things are, are are false when we look at her, right? Uh, she's the, the opposite of all of these th- things when we see the, these truths. That, that no, she she's not oppressed. Uh, she does prioritize family as well as as well as her career is able to do that. Um, that she's actually adored by conservatives. Uh, we don't hate women. In fact, we want to elevate them. Um, that that she she does need her husband. She comes out and says that all the time, right? She wouldn't be able to do that. And so uh, she she. Women and men need each other, um, and so and, and also that religious people, conservatives are anti-sex. Obviously not true, um, and then. Obviously, women don't need to uh, repress their facility to succeed. In her case, uh, she has a, a bunch of children. So, Yeah, and part of that, the challenge there is that she is, at least at the outset, and again, I always feel bad for these people that get thrust into the public arena um, at the national level quite this suddenly. She's no stranger to, to publicity. You know, she's been top of her class. She's been in clerking, I believe, for Scalia, and, and she's been on— on the national uh, stage, just not right front and center with all the spotlights quite like this. I'm sure she's not perfect, you know, and, and we do want to create this almost, you know, caricature. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from all appearances, she's a very compelling counter narrative. You know, if option A is the liberated independent woman who's got complete control over her life so that she can have sexual freedom to do whatever she wants without consequences, she can have economic freedom to do whatever she wants without expectations or limitations, she can have social freedom to do whatever she wants without having to compete against, you know, any any gender norms or stereotypes in society. And not all of those things are bad things, but if if that's that's the narrative over here, then what they want the alternative to look like is anybody who doesn't do that is a person who's a you know a victim of domestic abuse, stuck in their home, barefoot, pregnant, in the mm-hmm. kitchen, with a whole bunch of right. children around that are screaming and yelling all the time, and she's just losing her mind, right? That that's that's the image of the alternative that that they're thinking through when they view this paradigm, and we have to be careful. We can do the opposite, but uh, Amy is just not somebody who fits that that paradigm. She's been referred to at least by one of her uh, professors, I believe, as a professor, as generationally brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, that she's the smartest person in whatever room she happens to be in. Uh, and she's been very successful in what she's done, but without having it be this um, you know, sort of type A personality, go, 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 ambition, ambition, ambition. And that, that just doesn't fit neatly into the narrative. It kind of speaks to, and I don't know how long we'll want to explore this because maybe it's a topic for another week, but speaks to this. We live in a time where we really aren't arguing about reality anymore. In, in many cases at the national level, we're having these big debates about hypotheticals. And if you, if you do take the time to say, well, I'm not trying to dismiss that this is happening, but where specifically is it happening? How often is it happening? Very hard to get information about this. And so ultimately what you're left with is you've got an ideology fighting against another ideology. And in many cases, because we're so uh, withdrawn from people we disagree with, uh, they don't even know what we actually believe. They don't even know what our lives, for example, your, you know, your family's life, my family, they don't even know what it really looks like. What I find fascinating is that when we're in the, out in the community and I've got friendships with people that I know are politically different, because I see the the signs in their front yard come election season. I know they're probably voting differently than I am. Um, we're actually very good on a f- very good friends. 
in terms of seeing one another and being cordial with one another, but I suspect that there's this suspicion of what's what what are they really like, you know, when they're looking at the Larmore family simply because of a political stereotype. So I, I just find it really I think as Christians we can we can in our in our little sphere here in town, uh, we can go the extra mile by getting beyond just simple sloganing and throwing a pithy little phrase at someone as if that does anything, or on social media, you know, throwing out "love it or leave it," you know, about national issues. Those are meaningless things. They don't produce anything but division and strife. If we go the extra mile and allow people that disagree with us socially or politically to see who we are, what it means to have a home that's not perfect, there is no such thing, but a home that that is generally focused between us and our wives, focused on honoring God and loving each, loving God, loving each other and loving our community. That's got to be one of the most powerful testimonies that we can project out into our community. Absolutely. And that's not the only family model that the Bible allows for and even encourages Singleness has a prominent mm-hmm. place, and Paul encourages it dramatically, but that kind of family-centric approach to life is normative. That is the normal design for human civilization. That's the way God designed it in Genesis, and uh, we should celebrate that wherever we see it. All right, Nate. We're going to stop that and, and head off to you for about a little that local story. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to signal like 20 minutes ago by kicking my coffee cup halfway across the room here. That was effective. Time to move on. Did you get? Did you hear that? But yes. you're the one trying to take this all in another direction again, and I'll hold the debate for another week. Oh, that's my fault. My fault. well, speaking of community, uh, right here in town in Spokane Valley, last uh, last Monday, and we're recording this on Thursday. So last Monday at about 4 a.m a local family woke up to the sound of smoke alarms going off in their apartment. And as they went, and I'm gathering this from the, the various uh, spokesman review and KREM even covered the, covered some of the details. The family got up, went over and opened their door, and there was a major fire going in their home. They tried to fight it with fire extinguishers. They were unsuccessful. Uh, the husband actually uh, ended up in the ICU with burns to his feet and to his hands and to his body because he was trying to stomp and pat out the flames. Uh, I mean, a horrible situation. Uh, the kind of thing that I think any of us... A worst case nightmare. I mean, this this fits into it. The uh, the the man, the husband, his parents, and live with them in the home. They were able to get them out of the house. They have, they actually had to escape the house by crawling out of windows. And in the midst of all that, the central hallway was where the blaze started, right? Right. There's no so no way the, out. Yeah, all the the main access was cut off. I mean, just 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 an absolute horrible situation. And in the midst of the chaos. They, it, it occurred to them that their 15-year-old daughter, where is she? They went over to her window to wake her up. She was not in the room. And uh, around this time, I believe the fire department arrived and, and pulled everybody out away from the apartment building uh, because of a health condition. The father-in-law had oxygen bottles in the home, and they were afraid those would explode, and they did indeed explode and uh, made made the fire. It was a total loss in terms of the apartment. The Around that time... That the 40 minutes, I believe, after they woke up to this, the family saw their 15-year-old daughter walking down the street, and she readily admitted that she was the one who'd actually set the fire, and uh, and that she had a problem and needed help, and the family was completely shocked by this. I think the last thing that before this all happened, 
their daughter and said, I love you and went to bed the night before. Um, so you can just, I mean, putting yourself in the situation of this family, it's hard to imagine having lost everything materially. And then on top of that, the, uh, the heart, the heartbreak of, of having this issue with, with their teenage daughter, teenage daughter was arrested and, um, was taken into custody and I believe has been charged, uh, with, um, with attempted murder. And so you've got a family here that has been uh, fractured. Uh, you might might even be tempted to say destroyed, uh, hopefully not. Um, there is a GoFundMe account that's been set up to, to assist them. And um, it's easy to find if you just uh, look up the Spokane, fam- Spokane Valley. In fact, if you go to bombadillsporch.com and go to this episode, this is season one, episode five. Five, yeah. Uh, we will include a link to that in the oh, show description great. there. The, um, I did have opportunity to trade a couple of messages with, with Carol. And I use her name, not, not, and I haven't violated her privacy. She was actually interviewed by KREM News here. Um, it was that news coverage that allowed, allowed me to even find out what was going on late Monday. And uh, just amazingly poised woman. Uh, I'm, I, I can't imagine having kept my, my wits and, um, and, and kept my composure like she has through such a painful situation. Uh, one of the needs that, uh, in addition to the GoFundMe, I mean, money is also, they've, they've lost everything and they have nowhere to live. And so the GoFundMe is certainly going to be helpful in replacing uh, some of what's been lost. But she did mention in her email to me that they are, they're looking for a place to live. So that would be something that um, I don't know about here in our church or um, folks that we know here in the community. If How if, many folks? Uh, so there's parents, there's in-laws. I believe it it's four, like. people four people total right now. Okay. Um, so that, just one would, child, just the daughter? Yeah, and, and, and she's in custody right, right now okay. for the foreseeable future. I, um, you know, in addition to financial support, which, is, which can be a critical lifeline, for in, in these kinds of emergencies, I, I wanted to get you guys' take on how can how can Jesus followers like us how can we tangibly serve our neighbors in tragedies like this? I mean, let's say I, uh, if I had a place to give them to live, I I would, but I don't. What are some other ways we can we can help people like this other than just feeling the shock and horror, and then going on with daily life as as often happens? Yeah, it's. It's difficult because our communities don't function like they used to. You know, in, in other ages, communities were already so tightly knit. People knew each other so well uh, that when disaster struck, you would just run to your neighbor's house. And, and the hospitality culture just took over. There was expectations for what that looks like and how it would work. And the community would come together. Uh, now we live in an age where we often don't know our neighbors, there's insurance companies involved, there's legal processes involved, and it's hard to figure out what you're allowed to do, what's, what's needed to be done. Uh, I, I, would, I would hope that those in that immediate area have, have been reaching out. Um, obviously, when disaster strikes our neighbors, I think there needs to be a sense of ownership, that this is my neighborhood, these are my people. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm, I'm going to show up and... And, and be helpful in whatever way I can. Um, sometimes there aren't a lot of practical things to be done, but I, I wouldn't, I, I try to think immediately, what would I want if, if my house burnt down? And I would imagine letters, notes of encouragement, um, 
things that are tangible ways of representing the love and concern of the community, I think would be very meaningful to me if, if I had lost my home, um, help, you know, again, in an age of insurance companies and things that may be like, no, don't touch everything. So we have to send all our appraisers out there and then we're going to bring in all the heavy equipment and stuff. But if there's, if folks need help, we need people to just kick through the ashes with us and see if we can recover any photos, see, you know, what can be saved. That kind of stuff would be meaningful. Uh, and then practical needs, you know, if I need a place to live right now, uh, can we find a place for them to live? Can we, or, you know, through GoFundMe and things like that, contribute financially so they can find a place to stay renting or, or a hotel or something. Um, but I, I, for me personally, I think it would just be knowing that people care and having some tangible representation of that would mean the most. Yeah, I think, um, you know, a place to live. If there is a, a believer, there's somebody that that uh, that's out there that has uh, has room in their home can can put them up. I, I mean, I think that's that's a huge thing, and and sometimes that's inconvenient. You know, I know a lot of us think, oh man, we don't have space. You know, we have six kids at home and uh, and several others often crashing on the couch, and so you know we don't necessarily legitimately have space. But but in the past, there have been times where we've had a room where we could move all the kids into into one room and and have a room you know where we could could have somebody stay over, and that that's a tremendous blessing. The times that we've had people in unfortunate situations, circumstances, uh, just live with us uh, has been has been a real blessing to our family actually, and so I. I think, man, a good question for Christians to ask is even if, if even if you can't right now, would you be willing to allow complete strangers to come and, and live in your home? Would you be hospitable in that way? Um, you know, our our whole podcast is named after Tom Bombadil, and, and we see him uh, exhibiting that kind of hospitality uh, to uh, to our our friends in the Lord of the Rings. There, when they find themselves in peril, <laughs> he not only rescues them, but then he they, he has them into his home. That. Um... That that area of hospitality that is a lost, it's a bit of a lost uh, quality, isn't it? It, it just yeah. in in general, real hospitality, not the not the Christian version, which means I have my best friends over and we eat our favorite food together. Right. But the biblical word for hospitality in the Greek literally means love of strangers. That's right. It reminds me of the parable that uh, that Jesus taught about the Good Samaritan. And, uh, and in some way, it, it, you know, we, I think when we're growing up or when you first hear that parable, you think to yourself, oh, I would be the guy that goes and helps. But the reality is most of us are the people that ignore uh, the problem because problems are inconvenient and, and tragedy never strikes at the right time. You've never planned, and, and it, well, certainly tragedy to you personally, but tragedy in your neighborhood or in your community, it's never convenient to help. And I think that's... You know, that's something that we can prepare our hearts and minds that when when these sorts of things come up, it's it's not going to happen at a convenient moment. I'm going to have to take action. But that's part of re- the reason God has us here. I don't know about you guys, but I, I wonder if you have some tips uh, for f- tips for getting from point A to point B. And by that, I mean, point A is usually when we become aware of a sad situation and we feel sadness, we feel empathy for someone that's going through terrible tragedy. Point B is I actually do something meaningful. I actually take action because up until then, all I've done is experienced feeling, which has really no real value to someone who's going through tragedy. How do you guys get from that point A to point B? Well, I think you did a good exa- good example here just to use your paradigm. You found out what happened, then you found out where it happened, then you found out who it happened to, and then you reached out and said, hi, 
Yep. And well, I'm not just, quite at point B. I'm trying, right? Well, well you've course, reached out. You've exchanged a number of emails. Well, and anyone you've, can do the GoFundMe, so that, that's yeah, something we can do. Yeah, but you've reached out. Do. You've actually made contact. Yeah. You've been talking to this this lady who's you know representing this family that's lost everything, and you're saying, how can we help? And I think just getting that far is that's the hardest step. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I usually get. That's where I usually stop. I don't take that effort to track down the information, to make the contact, to find out what's really going on. Well, maybe that's something we can help for folks that are listening in right now, too. Uh, that information will be on our website, at least the GoFundMe link. Yeah, the GoFundMe. I'd want to make sure we don't put personal contact no, information no, out in a public setting. You, you <laughs> know, we would, we would route it through the appropriate. But that's actually how I got in touch with, uh, with the family is through the GoFundMe page and received a uh, personal email back um, through that page uh, relatively quickly. But I, I think, um, again, coming back to as, as Christians in this town, trying to make a difference, a positive difference here in our town. These are the sorts of situations. Uh, we talked about the, the community that was wiped out by fire when we were chatting last, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, Chris, you brought that to our attention. These are the sorts of situations where uh, we can we can take action. And, and I would add, add to it, sometimes it's easy to just make a small donation to someone like that. And I think that's important. But I think you ought to, we ought to involve our families in the situation Put, allow our kids to be a part of, this is how, as Christians, we don't just talk about serving God. We don't just talk about loving each other. God's called, we have a duty to reach out to people in need and, and involve our kids in that, because that's the best way to learn something, is actually seeing it modeled and being a part of it. Amen. Well, Caleb, um, want to close out that section with directing folks to our website for more information and, and to be a tangible blessing, a tangible help to this family here in town. Um, but that's all I've got. What have you got for us to close? Yeah, well, that's all for this episode of Bombadil's Porch. Thank you for enjoying the view of God's world with us. We hope you'll join again soon. To subscribe to our podcast, look up Bombadil's Porch on Spotify using your podcasting software of choice. Or visit bombadillsporch.com, where you can also leave us a voicemail with comments or questions. We always love hearing from our listeners. And we can also be reached at bombadillsporch at gmail.com. And we close with a quote from Craig D. Lounsbro. We would sit on the old glider swing, my grandmother and I. And as people passed her broad front porch, she would point and say, The best life you can live is when you touch at least one life a day for Jesus. For myself, Nate, and Chris, we wish you a day with full of intentionality uh, in, in viewing the people around you. Um, and, and consider, as Nate has uh, encouraged us, not just feeling sadness or empathy, empathy for, for someone that you see, but actually doing something about it. <laughs>